Chapter 12 is our evening studies that we have titled The Old Gospel Story. It continues tonight as we're going to give our attention to a pivotal moment in David's life after having last week look at 2 Samuel 7, and we referred to that covenant that God made with David as, as genuinely the climactic crescendo in David's spiritual life. And, and now we find David in so many ways at the opposite end of that spiritual spectrum tonight as the Lord comes to him with a word through the prophet David. So we're going to give our attention to the first 15 verses of 2 Samuel 12. So let me read them and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. So listen once again as God does speak to you through his word. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Now, Father, we thank you that you continue to speak to us always by your word and spirit. And even this night as we gather in your presence that you speak to us. A word that is direct and confronts our conscience about the reality of our sin and our need to repent of it. Uh, Father, we do pray that this night you would lead us to full conviction of sin, uh, that we, like David, might know the cleansing power of your mercy and grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
I have always loved revival stories. You know, these stories about God's extraordinary power flowing through his ordinary means of grace. Uh, these occasional uprisings, as it were, of God's surprising, a sovereign strength working through preaching to bring about conversion, to bring about repentance, to bring about a renewal. And I have, I have a book that has a cherished place in my study, and it's, it's actually on the subject of preaching, but there's a particular section that thinks about uh, preaching in previous centuries as it relates to revival. And so the author begins to take a series of genuine revivals in church history and, and see what he can squeeze out of those revivals as it relates to applications for preaching. So, for example, he looks at uh, the preaching of a man named Thomas Chalmers and, and points to his blood earnestness in preaching. And then he uh, looks even to a man named William Sprague and, and talks about his seriousness uh, with the word. And eventually he looks at Charles Spurgeon and talks about his, his reverence in the midst of his preaching of Jesus Christ. And then he kind of turns his attention. He puts modern preachers in his crosshairs and wonders why it is uh, that many pulpits today don't know the reviving work of the Holy Spirit. If, as the Bible and church history makes clear, it's ordinarily through the preaching of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that revival comes to people. Oh, why is revival, renewal, oh, awakening in Jesus Christ all but foreign in so many of our churches. Well, he says this, it's surely a sign of the age that we preachers are far more adept at humor than tears. Laughter seems to have replaced repentance as the goal of many preachers. I trust you know what he's pointing at in that comment. How it's quite easy. You can come into a church building on the Lord's Day and, and hear many a person here behind a pulpit speak in such a way where it's driving you to humor. And smiling is a good thing. A joyful gathering before the Lord, it's necessary. But when was the last time that you, after hearing God's word, felt yourself driven immediately to bow your knee, perhaps literally, before the Lord, or bow your heart before the Lord, because such was the power of God's word that it drove you to immediate conviction. It drove you to full repentance. It even drove you to tears of sorrow over your sin. Uh, I, I trust that many of you would probably agree with me that uh, many of our churches are, uh, are quite immune to that spiritual response. Uh, it shows something about our own spiritual condition, I suppose, so something about preachers like me. Well, the reason I tell you that is because what we're looking at tonight is the Lord's direct word to David that does lead to tears of sorrow. This is a story about repentance as what we're going to look at along the way today. Now, kids, I, I do hope that you know what repentance means. It's a word if you've grown up in a good gospel church, I trust you've heard oftentimes if your parents have perhaps taught you a kid's catechism, you might know something like repentance is to be sorry for sin, to hate it and forsake it because it's displeasing to God. It's something that we're going to see in David's own confrontation here with the truth and reality of his sin that what he has done ultimately is nothing more than displease the Lord and despise the Lord's word. And it's from that that he must turn. So we're going to think about this story of repentance as our old gospel story tonight. And I want to first show you the confrontation about sin. That's the majority of our text. And then briefly at the end, we'll think about the confession of sin that we do hear uh, from David. 
But because, of course, we're kind of picking up the story, uh, quite into the story, let's make sure that we set the stage uh, appropriately. And you only need to look one verse above where our text begins to see what's going on, don't you? You see the end of chapter 11, verse 27, the last part of that verse says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So kids, what is it that David had done in the previous paragraphs? Well, he began, didn't he? Uh, by taking Bathsheba, committing adultery with her, she conceived a child. And in order to try to cover up his sin, David ultimately sets Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, at the front lines of battle to ensure that he would die. And, and thereby his sin would supposedly be covered up. But of course, the Lord knows all things. The Lord sees all things. It's not possible to Cover up your sin as though the Lord doesn't actually know what's going on. And so that's when we come to our text tonight in chapter 12 with the Lord sending this prophet named Nathan, a close friend of David, to speak a, a direct word of confrontation. And we know by this point that Bathsheba has already borne the son, conceived in sin between David and Bathsheba. Uh, depending on how the timeline goes, or something like 12 months on from David and Bathsheba's adultery. And you, you can picture, almost as it were, David there in his palace of peace. He's maybe moved on from the shame that had happened months before. He's perhaps thinking he's sitting there in, in comfort and contentment. But of course, the Lord sees all things. And the Lord will never let his people go long without being directly confronted with the realities and consequences of their sin. So I want you to see in this confrontation two specific things. I want you to see, first of all, it's a sovereign confrontation. Look at verse 1. It begins by telling us, Yahweh sent Nathan to David. I don't want you to race past that simple phrase at the beginning. God sent Nathan to David. What is God doing? He's initiating, he's pursuing, he's driving towards a response in his beloved servant, David. Uh, the previous chapters found David. He, David's the one. He's doing all the plotting. He's doing all the scheming. He's doing all the strategizing. But here, this verb even shows up another 12 times in the next few verses. The Lord is sending and sending and sending his truth after David. And that, that sovereign confrontation, it's a truth that I want to encourage you tonight. If you, if you belong to Jesus Christ, it's a comfort to know God will not leave you alone in your sin. Do you know one of the most terrifying things you can ever experience on this earth is God leaving you alone to your sin. But for those whom he truly loves, there will come a point always where he will send his word after you to drive you to repentance. And so that's what he does. He sends Nathan. And Nathan begins with what we might call a judicial sample case. Remember, David is the king in Israel and Judah. David, therefore, is the supreme judge over all of God's people. So, so Nathan, his friend, this prophet of God, he comes and says, David, I want to tell you a story. It's about this rich man and it's about this poor man. And you can, of course, see it in the first four verses of chapter 12. But students, we can summarize it in this way. You have a rich man who has everything a man could ever want. Then you have a poor man. All he has is this precious little ewe lamb. So precious to him, the lamb even eats and drinks with him at his table. Eventually, a traveler comes and resides with the rich man. 
The rich man needs to feed the traveler. But instead of taking one of his many countless flocks, taking from his many countless herds to feed the traveler, he goes to the poor man's house, takes his little ewe lamb, kills it, and feeds the rich man with the poor man's little beloved ewe lamb. So you can think about David in this moment. He's hearing this story of injustice. His judge-like character and his judge-like capacity is, is basically leading David to utter a sentence upon the rich man. Notice verse 5 and 6. His anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore to the lamb fourfold, or restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, uh, I want you to see in just verse uh, 5 and 6 how David is full of religious fervor. You see in verse 5, he calls on an oath of the Lord, doesn't he? As the Lord lives. he's, He's passionate for the truth. He's passionate for justice here. Not just that. He actually says, well, there needs to be a fourfold restitution. That comes directly from God's law in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. So what you have here is David, fervent for God's name, Fervent for God's law and utterly self-righteous in his unconfessed sin. I hope you know you, you can be utterly fervent for God's name. You can be utterly aware and fervent for God's law and be completely self-righteous in unconfessed sin before the Lord. It's a sovereign confrontation. That in the next few verses leads to a severe confrontation with the Lord's word. I love the story of a 19th century Methodist preacher named Peter Cartwright. He was known for zeal, being vigorous in preaching, as so many were at that time. And uh, The story is told that one day he was going to preach to President Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson's aides, knowing that this might be a little bit of a a crisis-like event. You know, trouble was on the way. You've got Peter Cartwright preaching and Andrew Jackson's going to be there. And so they sidled up to Cartwright before the sermon and said, hey, try to keep everything in balance, you know, Pastor Cartwright. Don't be too, too clear in all your declarations and exclamations for which you are well known. Well, sure enough, as the service goes on and, and Cartwright comes behind the pulpit, he gets behind the pulpit and he begins in a typical Cartwright way. He says, I've been told today that President Andrew Jackson is in the house. Someone has told me to keep my remarks circumspect. But I tell you today that Andrew Jackson, he will go to hell if he does not repent. It's true, isn't it? It's courage. It's bold. uh, Confronting someone in authority. And isn't that exactly what Nathan does in verse 7 to a friend speaking for the Lord? David, exclaiming, you are are the man. Zeal for God's name, zeal for God's law, you're utterly self-righteous. That's you, David, that took the precious little you lamb. And then you'll notice God even begins to record through Nathan all of the kindness that he had bestowed upon David. You see it enumerated there in verse 7 and 8. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from Saul's hand. I brought you a family. I brought you rule and reign in Israel and Judah. And such is God's amazing grace for his people. He says, notice the end of verse 8. And if this were too little, I would have given you even that much more. What was the problem? 
At least as God's now speaking directly to David that lay at the root of his sin but ingratitude. I gave you so much, David. You took what didn't belong to you. I would have given you so much more. I hope you know that ingratitude, it often fuels, doesn't it? Sin. That thanklessness creates this air in which iniquity can often thrive. And you see the question posed to him in verse 9. Why have you despised the Lord's word to do what is evil in his sight? Yes, of course, you have committed adultery with Bathsheba. Yes, of course, you have killed Uriah the Hittite, murdering him by ensuring that he would be on the front lines. But the ultimate sin, David, is you have despised my word. You have despised my law. What you have done has displeased me. And so you'll see what the consequence of David's sin is. That's why it's a severe confrontation. You notice verse 11. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he's just said, because you took Uriah with the sword, I'm going to keep the sword in your house. Because uh, you took Bathsheba and sinned with her in private. I'm going to bring another along that's going to take your beloved and sin with them. You notice the end of verse 11 and 12. Sin with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Students, you may know how it wasn't too many years into the future that that exactly happened. And the one who did that with David's wives was none other than his son, Absalom, a consequence of his sin. This is the confrontation about sin. And then you see, of course, in verse 13, it leads to a confession about sin. Now, the first and only detention that I ever received was when I was in sixth grade. I was out in the hallway and I was walking into my English class. And I passed by my English teacher talking there at the doorway with another teacher. I was only a few steps past my English teacher when she said, Mr. Stone, what do you have to say to me? And I turned around and I said, nothing. And I just took a few more steps towards my desk and she said, I'll see you for detention this afternoon. And I was totally mystified by what had just happened. And evidently, my walking by her while she was talking had disrupted her in the midst of her conversation and she said what do you have to say to me expecting that I would say I'm sorry excuse me for walking by and I had no clue that I had disrupted anything in any way I had no clue that I had done anything wrong so I had no clue why I should ever say anything like I'm sorry for what I just did so I was in detention my one and only time later that afternoon well David knows exactly what he's done doesn't he Uh, you wonder don't you? And I, I, maybe even some of you know this in your own life. You know, you've done something sinful before the Lord and weeks and months pass. Nobody knows about it. But the conscience becomes more and more plagued by what you have done. There's a desire almost even to just be honest and open in the reality of what you have committed. David knows precisely what he has done. Nathan has pointed his finger right at him. David, you are the man. And you see David's confession He knows exactly what to say. Verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. 
He doesn't say, although he could have, and even should have, I've sinned against Bathsheba, I've sinned against Uriah. But he knows ultimately the sin is against the Lord. That's why he eventually pins that wonderful psalm that we sang earlier, Psalm 51. A psalm all about his sorrow over this very sin, where he says, against you, you Lord, and you only have I sinned. I wonder when you have committed some wrong or you have broken God's law, if you are someone who is quick, when you have sinned, to recognize that the ultimate offense is against the Lord. When was the last time you left the Lord's word being preached to you and declared to you and you even bowed your knees before him in your seat saying, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. It's an appropriate confession, isn't it? This is a story about David's repentance. You know, I often wonder if if many Christians uh, treat sin something like a grenade that is defective. You know, it kind of drops into the foxhole of your Christian life and you fall in there and freak out for a second and you realize it's not going to explode and you think, okay, everything's all right. But as we see, for, for God's beloved children there will always eventually be a confrontation about the sin. You, you do need to know there will always eventually be consequences of that sin. And so as we close our short meditation together this night, I want to take from verse 13 and 14 uh, two simple things that we find in those verses that should lead us in repentance. Because kids, I want you to know that, of course, repentance is one of the first steps of obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the apostles would often preach Christ, and people say, what must we do to be saved? You say, repent and believe in the gospel. But repentance, of course, isn't just a one-time reality. It's the nature of the Christian life. Every single day we're taking steps forward in faith, repenting of our sin. And, And what, according to this text, might be there that helps drive us to repentance with greater faithfulness, maybe even greater frequency, Well, number one, the Lord's discipline. The Lord's discipline drives us to repentance. You see verse 13 and 14. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. You know, I mean, I think there's a pastoral point that you always want to make in texts like this because the reality of God's fatherly care, according to the author of the book of Hebrews, is that God loves his children enough to discipline them. That if he didn't discipline his children, he would treat us like illegitimate sons. Uh, But it's a challenge, isn't it? And certainly it isn't something we have time to spell out together tonight. But when a child dies, when a miscarriage happens, Maybe you've experienced such realities and maybe you've wondered, is that because of sin that I committed? All I can tell you tonight as a pastor is, I don't know. All I can tell you tonight as a pastor, but the Lord does mean for it to drive you to renewed faith, repentance, and obedience. I hope you have a place in your spirituality that knows the Lord disciplines his children. And just like a parent When disciplining a child says, I'm doing this because I love you. The Lord says, you want to know how I love you? Receive my discipline for your sin. Discipline. God's discipline drives us to repentance. It's also the Lord's deliverance drives us to repentance. You see again, verse 13 at the end, the Lord has also put away your sin. 
you shall not die. It's an amazing thing, of course, for David to hear because he knows clearly his Old Testament law well enough that the adultery he committed with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband Uriah, demands that what? He die. That would have been just, that would have been righteous, that would have been proper. But God says, no, I've put away your sin. You shall not die. That's even why one commentator on this text says this, I think even in the church we've lost the marvel of such forgiveness. We have by and large the vending machine view of forgiveness rather than the miraculous view. What does he mean by that? Well, he continues, we pop in our penitence token and out comes the assurance of pardon. It's all in the script. It's all in the church bulletin. That's another thing for it to seize our mind and to convulse our emotion. And if you read this text in conjunction with Psalm 51, you see that God's forgiveness did what? It seized David's mind. It convulsed his emotion because of the Lord's mercy in deliverance. And one of the striking things that you need to recognize here is the language in verse 13 and 14. It's substitutionary. Look at it again and hear it in this way. The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, the child who is born to you shall die. Someone's going to die for the sin. And it's a son of David. Another son of David would come along, wouldn't he? And as David can cry out in Psalm 51, purge me with the hyssop. A hyssop branch raised to Jesus when he was on the cursed cross at Calvary. There, the son of David dying for people who deserved to die. But because of God's tender love, because of God's tender mercy, that same word can be spoken over you this night, candid. The Lord has also put away your sin. Because the son of David, he took the eternal discipline that you deserve, that you might know the deliverance of his mercy and grace. So, repent. Let's pray together. Father, we we want to be a people that know what it means to walk in honesty and humility before you, that we walk in the light as you are in the light, that we keep not our sins from you, but we bring them to you with full confidence in the assurance that you will forgive them as we cling to the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray for all of us in the room this night, even especially those that have never truly repented of sin, that they would know the, the discipline that their sin deserves. Lord, help us all to rejoice afresh in the deliverance that your mercy provides, that a substitute has come, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we respond to this wonderful grace of God by turning in the hymnal to number 465.